Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I have another guest on the show and I'm speaking to Joelle Rabomelitis, who is a licensed clinical psychotherapist, TED-Ed speaker author for a PTSD video, CEO, trauma expert and podcast host for Switch as well as Bipolar Girl. Joelle's initial passion was dance. As a ballet dancer immersed within the dance world for over 20 years, She had a career-ending injury though and thought therapy would be an interesting profession, particularly after finding therapy an invaluable tool in navigating her own mental health struggles, including eating disorders, trauma and body image. Joelle fell in love with psychology. It helped her understand her internal world better and guided her to make lifelong changes necessary to thrive rather than simply surviving. Joelle felt called to work with trauma and began working with broad spectrum eating disorders, trauma and eventually military psychology. Becoming a psychotherapist became as much of a love as being a dancer for Joelle. Her therapy practice was started to help others discover their hopes, dreams and abilities to thrive through adversity. This led her to mentoring as well as teaching students, interns and associates to do the same and Joelle's ongoing goal is to teach thriving through adversity. Joelle is a native Californian and adores spending time with her family, partner, two children and pets, Cleo and Madeira. Outside of the office, she enjoys all adventures, especially being an avid skier. And when not working, Joelle loves traveling, sports, cooking, baking, running, biking, hiking, reading, writing and watching women's soccer. She is a busy woman. In the episode today, you'll hear all about Joelle's recovery story and the pressures of the dance world around body image and perfectionism. Joelle shares candidly about her experiences of therapy, her resistance to change at different points, and what truly helped her heal. She also explores an eating disorder as a psychological coping strategy and the importance of creating safety and alternative ways of soothing to allow healing. Joelle talks about lapsing and becoming aware of triggers so you can recover faster and get back on track. She's incredibly generous with her sharing and vulnerability in this episode, so you get a deep insight into the recovery journey. Let's get to the conversation. Hi, Joelle. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me, Harriet. I'm excited to talk with you. Great. So, Joelle, can I please firstly get you to introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. So I'm Joelle Rabo Miletus. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in the United States, California, and several other states. And we have a clinic that focuses on trauma-informed care. And we work with PTSD. We work with various forms of trauma, eating disorders, addictions, and other kind of niche populations. And what else can I tell you about me? I'm a writer. I'm a speaker. I am a mother of two adult children and I'm a retired ballerina. Mm, Wonderful. Thank you. 
So Joelle, actually, I just want to mention as well, before, in case it doesn't come up in the rest of the podcast, that you have also produced a TED education talk. Is that right? Like a TEDx talk? Yeah. So I am the TED global expert on PTSD and was fortunate enough to be able to do an animated short with TED mental health and get that produced. And it has over, oh my gosh, 3.2 million views. It's in almost 30 languages worldwide and we're really proud of it. So that's incredible. And I will make sure, Joelle, that that goes in the show notes because I think I had a little look at it earlier and I think it's beautifully clear and simple and the graphics for it are great as well. I think, you know, many people, many more people that haven't seen it already will really benefit from viewing that. Oh, thanks so much. That would be great. It was just an amazing experience getting to work with the TED team to do that. Mm, no, wonderful. So Joelle, I understand before you became a therapist, you had a 20 plus year career as a dancer. Is that right? I did. Yes. I started off in ballet and then moved into doing, at the time it was film and commercials and movies, doing some TV spots, but being in front of the camera. And I did ballroom dance and I did Latin dance and salsa and East Coast swing and all sorts of different things. And got to do what I loved doing for 22 years. And then eventually I got postgraduates in that, taught university and had some career ending injuries and transitioned into doing psychology, which is a whole nother story. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So can I just ask you a little bit about your dance career? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Sure. So You know, obviously, it sounds like I can hear in your voice when you're talking about dance, that it was obviously something that you really loved and got so much joy from and, you know, just a real sort of passion for it. But I'm just wondering as well, like, you know, I guess being a dancer, it can be like very challenging, can't it, with sort of body image and often being in front of the mirror and that sort of thing. So I'm just wondering, is that something that was a struggle for you at all? Absolutely. And, you know, it really was and is a love-hate relationship. And I say that because it was something that I loved doing. I wanted to be a ballerina when I was a little, little, little girl, right? And got to do that. And it transitioned from being my love and bringing me joy to being painful and then having guilt around, well, if I don't do this, who am I going to be? And struggling with, then it became my job. And then what was that going to look like? So it went through all of these different iterations of happiness, joy, passion, work, pain, struggle, and body image, eating disorders, and all different kinds of eating disordered behavior started. And then that body dysmorphia of never really getting an accurate picture of what I looked like then. And it's things that, you know, I'd like to say I'm in recovery that rather than I'm recovered, my dissertation was working with broad spectrum eating disorders, trauma and addiction. And it was one of those things where when I was going through psych school, my supervisors and, you know, advisors would say, this is not the population for you. You're going to always be triggered. And I went, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll do it anyway. And, (laughs) you know, and I loved working with eating disorders. I love working with eating disorders. And yet it's hard to balance my own trauma, eating disorders, PTS, 
being a dancer and being in recovery. And so, you know, I think now, right, disordered eating, sometimes, you know, I'll be honest, sometimes it's a struggle. The body image, the body dysmorphia, getting older, how I think I should and should in air quotes look versus what's realistic. You know, Mm. I still struggle with those kinds of things. Mm. No, well, thank you, Joanne. I think it's just so helpful that you can just share that so openly and honestly, because I think it's something that we can all struggle with body image, can't we? You know, we sometimes think of it very much as an eating disorder thing. But, you know, it's something that in the culture we live in, it's very easy to become very self-critical, isn't it? And to feel that we have to meet different ideals, whatever age we're at. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about like growing up as a dancer and having your body constantly change and it's, and then going through puberty and all of a sudden having breasts and hips. Well, that didn't fit in the world of ballet. I'm five, two and a half. And I would joke and say, I'm five, two and a half and I'm hippie and I'm mouthy. And that didn't necessarily make for a great ballerina either, especially when ballerinas were, you know, five, 10 and very lean and tall. And so from a very young age, I didn't look the part. And I was constantly being told I didn't look the part. And it's so it started with body image first rather than eating first. You know, mm-hmm. how can I look like a ballerina began with, well, I didn't like how I looked in my clothes. I didn't like my facial features. These were things I couldn't even control. And mm-hmm. so with eating, I figured out at a young age that oh, that's something I can control, right? I can't control that my hair's curly and it's not down to the back of my thighs, stick straight, right? I can't control that my facial features are the way they are, or my hips are bigger, or that I'm not tall enough. Like these are things out of my control and I can't change them, but I could change how I managed food. And so it was very, for me, interwoven with being in this world of aesthetics and how I was taking that on as an 11, 12, 13 year old girl, I started dancing professionally at 16. And so, you know, my brain wasn't developed, my body wasn't developed. And yet I had these ideas that I could fix this. And again, fix being for me, a very important word and understanding that There were things about me that didn't need to be fixed. And it took years of therapy to figure that piece out. Yeah, and I think just you describing that, I just think, you know, when you're, you know, hearing that you, when you were a dancer, it sounds like, I guess you would have been having that almost drip feedback so consistently, wouldn't you, about how you should look and you're looking in the mirror and you're around your peers. And I guess those messages become so strongly internalized, don't they, at a time where your brain is changing and developing. And I can really sort of empathize, I think, with just how hard that must be then to sort of change that, (laughs) your perception of yourself when those messages have been so persistent and so strong and, you know, going on and on for many years. Yeah. And I think now too about this was pre-internet social media. And so it was all about, you know, what you saw in movies, on television and in the magazines, right? Billboards, magazines. And I think now about my experience being told that I needed to lose X number of pounds when I was already under a hundred pounds. 
you know, things like that, where if I were living in a digital age at that time, I don't know how I would have managed because of the messaging, the constant messaging that we get from social media. For me, it's an interesting reflection on how damaging it was at that time. And now noticing that, oh, those are still some of the triggers and I really have to unplug, right? There are times where I have to disengage from images, social media, movies about ballerinas that, you know, I'm too raw or there's something that's going on where it's hard for me to disconnect. So it really began about body image. It very quickly moved into disordered eating, which moved into an eating disorder. And the thing that I got, right, it's with the secondary gain. So one of the benefits I got was, well, I was a dancer and I was professionally a dancer. So I got to say, oh, I'm a ballerina. I don't have an eating disorder, right? Mm. And if you could see my face, I'm laughing and smiling about when I say that ironically, because I got to hide and I got to pass. And because this is what I did for a living, I never was in treatment. I didn't have to be hospitalized, right? I was able to fly under the radar and not get help. And it was a way to keep control when it fell out of control. Yeah, no, I thank you for sort of talking through that. And I think it's just a really important point, isn't it? That, you know, like an eating disorder, like many other kind of conditions, it's a way of coping, isn't it? And like you said, the kind of like sort of the benefits of the eating disorder, almost, it was kind of like giving you something that you could control, something that I guess was yours. It's just crazy, isn't it? I guess, like you said, as well, you went under the radar, because in a way, within the dance world, it was so normalized to be extremely thin, I guess, it was very, you were just even more accepted, probably validated or even praised maybe for conforming to that sort of ideal. Absolutely. And, you know, I was telling this story a couple months ago in, a, in an interview and it, it was something I had forgotten. And I, and I forget what the interviewer was at, the question that they had asked, but it was a reflection of, I remember thinking, I am a failure. And that was a common theme for me. And I remember thinking that I even failed at my eating disorder because in the height of my career as a ballerina, I was told that if I didn't lose about 12, you know, 12 pounds, and forgive me if this is triggering for those listening, and I was already under 100 pounds. And so if I didn't, if I didn't lose this weight, that I would lose the role. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm even failing at being an anorexic. I can't do that right either. Yeah, no, eating disorders are so destructive, aren't they? And I think I'm sure like anyone listening that has an eating disorder at this moment in time, I wonder if anyone ever feels good enough for their eating disorder. You know, it's almost like, I think we can often think, can't we, we're going to feel better or good enough when we get to a certain point but the goalposts always move don't they and it's it's really really hard to win I think at an eating disorder yeah and that voice that ed voice is so strong right it's insidious Mm -hmm. yeah no absolutely and can I ask you Joelle actually like with the ed voice did you sort of experience that how did you experience the ed voice just for just curious (laughs) Yeah, you know, at that time, as a child, teenager, young adult, it was really either my voice, right? Or it was whatever, co- you know, the ballet coach or, you know, 
director that I was working with it. So it wasn't this, it wasn't a separate thing. I felt Mm. like it was me. And when I started working with all of this stuff in therapy, which actually really began toward the end of my career, I didn't go into therapy until the end of my career. And it was to deal with injuries and the fact that I was probably going to lose my dance career that propelled me into therapy. It wasn't actually the eating disorders, interestingly enough, right? When I started Mm. to work with that voice, I started to understand a little bit more about what that Ed voice was and the coping mechanism that I used with that Ed voice to help really justify the behavior. You know, the more negative I was, the more I felt controlled by that Ed voice, the easier it was to use the eating disorder, that disordered behavior as a crutch or as a coping mechanism, right? So Mm -hmm. it was this co-mingled experience and it took time to unravel that and figure out what, you know, how the system worked, not what came first. Because Mm -hmm. I I had been doing it for so long that I needed to figure out what was going on with the system that was happening in my head and what were other coping mechanisms that I could use. And I had to do that work first before I could even begin to address the eating disorder. Mm -hmm. I had to replace the eating disorder, but I didn't want to. And so I had to find other ways to cope and work on that internal voice until I felt strong enough and capable enough to begin to work on the eating disorder. Mm, Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And I think what's so interesting is, like you said, you went into therapy maybe to deal with the injury and perhaps the grief maybe that your dance career was ending so I'm sure that must have been huge in itself wasn't it after you'd like been doing it for so long and it must have been so much part of your identity and you know I can't imagine what that could be like actually being injured and suddenly everything that you thought was ahead of you is suddenly you know that road has suddenly become blocked. Yeah and grief is the perfect word I didn't realize that it was grief right that took time to figure that out. It was a lot of like, well, you'll, you know, you can teach. And at the time I had two very, very little children. I had some relationship stuff that was going on. I was teaching at university. I was still dancing perfect. Like it was just, I was doing everything and anything I could do to not deal with I wasn't going to be performing every day, all day for the rest of my life. This was not going to be the plan. And I didn't, as much as I, like I said, it was a love-hate relationship, right? As much as I struggled with it, you're right. It was my identity. It was who I was. And I didn't know who I would be if I didn't have that. Yeah, no, sure. And it sounds like then when you went into therapy and then perhaps, you know, you were able to you know, look at perhaps some of the eating stuff and, and the other things that were going on. You know, I'm guessing as well, you're saying about perhaps there's a lot of like ambivalence maybe about change or I can imagine like letting go of that coping that had become so normal and like your kind of safety net would have felt really, really scary. And now a quick advertisement break. Are you a burned out, high achieving woman who's frustrated that emotional eating, weight gain and exhaustion are self-sabotaging your work and life? You're tired, fatigued, brain fogged, your cravings are through the roof and you feel so insecure in your body and that's impacting the way you show up in your business, career and life. 
Who could you be if you actually addressed your emotional eating struggles, built food freedom and made peace with your body? Free, that's what. Get support to fully overcome emotional eating, address hormone and gut issues and build the body confidence and connection you've always desired. If you're ready to address each piece, be sure to check out Amber Omaniac, emotional eating, digestive and hormone expert with nine years of experience helping over 1,500 women with support on all of the above without diets, without restriction or quick fixes. She will do a full health assessment and help you get to the root of your symptoms with hormone testing, gut health, and of course, support to help your body come back to balance with your mind and soul. Visit amberapproved.ca to book a 30-minute body freedom call or check out the No Sugar Coating podcast today to learn more about the connections between our relationship with food, mindset, and our health, and how it impacts the way we show up in all areas of our lives. It was terrifying. And it started with really having some issues around being pregnant and then being pregnant with my son. And, you know, and the doctor saying you have to put on X number of pounds and having a panic attack around that, you know, so it started with, I felt like even the eating disorder was being taken away from me. And that was no longer in my control. And what I wanted to do when I felt like I was out of control was to control my eating. And so it started with that. And I had an excuse in my head, right, to tell that Ed voice, well, I'm not going to do this eating disordered behavior because I have this little baby I need to grow. But as soon as I'm done doing that, I can go back to this eating disorder. And when I think about how ridiculously messed up this thinking was, you know, it's somewhat humiliating, right? And that brought on a whole nother thing of like, well, now I have to go to therapy to deal with the fact that (laughs) I can't come. Like, you know, it just, it kept snowballing on me. And I finally, you know, when I, when I got into therapy and I started working with a lot of this stuff, it was really about the replacement. And how I could control myself when I was feeling out of control and have a different relationship with food and understanding that it wasn't really about the food, right? It was about the perfectionism, the expectation, the trauma, all of the other stuff. It wasn't about the food. The food was just the method to the madness. Mm. Yeah, and it's so true, isn't it? Because I think when you're in the eye of the storm, it feels all about the food, doesn't it? And all about your body. (laughs) But um, yeah, once you start to kind of peel back the layers of the onion, it's just a lot more complex, isn't it? You know, that the food is very much and the body stuff is a, a lot of the symptom. But yeah, it's about so much more. Yeah. So I know, Joelle, as well, that you were saying, like, to even begin to fight the eating disorder, you had to kind of find that strength and sort of begin to find your own voice to begin to sort of like, you know, even do the work. So how did you begin to kind of find your voice again? I had a therapist that I still talk to. And this is, you know, she's been with me a very long time. Bless her heart. But she was no nonsense. She had a doctorate in dealing with addictions, not so much eating disorders. And she was highly recommended. And she went in and she just didn't sugarcoat things. And and one of my favorite stories about beginning to work with her is 
I was going on and on and on about, you know, the eating and the relationship, like just you name it, right? And and you know how clients, how we as clients do that, right? We tell the same thing and hope, you know, that somebody will believe our narrative that we're really trying to fool ourselves with or over and over and over again. And she finally one day, she goes, you know what, when you're done suffering, you let me know and then we can actually do some work. <laughs> and- And it was like, okay, pull the knife out of my heart when I'm done suffering. And I remember being so angry. I was so angry. And I walked out, I, you know, I, you know, all sorts of F words and I I hate her and, you know, I'm never going to see her again. And I go back the next Mm -hmm. week to tell her off, right? I'm terminating therapy and I'm going to go give her peace of my mind. And I sit down and she says, I'm surprised you showed up. And I said, yeah. And, And she goes, you know, I'm really really thankful that you did. And it threw me back, right? I'm like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be mad at you and telling you what, you know, how (laughs) terrible you are. And she said, (laughs) she said, I knew I was going to make you angry. And the only way to get through to you was for you to fight me on this because you're not willing to fight yourself. Mm. And it took many more years to really understand that it took going to psych school twice <laughs> to, you know, like mm. to do my master's and my PhD, like it took so much time to understand what she meant. And then it was like, ah, I get it. Right. I didn't have the strength to fight me. I had the strength mm. to fight other people. And once she started to externalize it and say, this is this doesn't have to be a part of you anymore. Felt like it gave me a little bit more strength to be able to to fight it. I couldn't find the empathy to do it. Mm. I wasn't I wasn't willing to extend that to myself. Mm. Yeah, and it's sure. Well, it sounds like she took quite a risk there. I guess didn't she? <laughs> <laughs> But it was obviously a very worthwhile one if you're still like seeing her, you know, occasionally yeah, today. <laughs> I don't see her every week anymore, but after, you know, 17 years. Yeah. I tell my clients that too, where I tell that story a lot of times because a lot, I'll say, you know, I'm channeling my therapist and, you know, it's not my job to tell you everything's going to be okay. It's my job to make you angry. Because when you're angry, sometimes that's where the catharsis is, right? Because we, it's not acceptable to be angry at ourselves and self-loathing, right? Especially this day and age, you know, good vibes only, no, you know, only positive thoughts. So there's no luxury or for, you know, we're not affording ourselves to get angry, And we have to be angry sometimes at something in order to break through the emotion of what we really feel because anger is easy to attach to, but shame, guilt, humiliation, right? Those are much harder feelings to access. Mm -hmm. And so in order to get there, right, sometimes we have to feel anger and that's scary, because it feels out of control. So then we're back in that loop again, right? Of, oh, now I'm out of control. Now the eating disorders are back and the behavior, because it's this negative mm. feedback loop that we get ourselves into. Mm. Yeah, no, it's so true, isn't it? But it sounds like, yeah, like for you in that moment as well, beginning to get in touch with your anger, it kind of like just burst the bubble a bit, didn't it? Or kind of it, it penetrated 
through to you in a way that it needed to. Because I think with eating disorders as well, you know, we can become so avoidant, you know, in a way to protect ourselves, can't we, from how we really feel. But the eating disorder just kind of like covers us in layers. So we're so cut off from ourselves, aren't we? So detached. Yeah. And eating disorders are also about perfection, right? And so perfect Mm. people aren't angry people, Mm. right? (laughs) You know, especially women, you know, perfect women aren't angry women. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it sounds like for you, and I guess I'm sure with all the dance world, like, do you feel as well, like being very much like the perfect, like a good girl, was that sort of very much sort of part of the whole thing? Oh, sure. Right. Because Mm. good girls are nice and good girls have friends and good girls get, you know, all of the extras and they get to wear the prom queen crown and they get the extra special roles and everybody loves them. And right. Like just all of this negative messaging that some was internal, some was socialized, some was, you know, the dance world, you know, talk back you know, you wait your turn. There was all of this messaging about how we were, quote, supposed to behave. But then, you know, what was happening behind the scenes where people were horribly nasty to each other. It was It's a very cutthroat world. If you, you know, it's everything from you can't, you know, you can't talk to that person. You can't stand at that place at the bar, you, you know, to fighting over roles and people are vicious and it definitely has an ugly side to it. And so something that's supposed to be beautiful is supposed to be good. And mm. then there was all this other behavior that was, quote, bad. Mm. Yeah, and it's so interesting, isn't it? That kind of real splitting between, like, I guess, yeah. kind of what's on show and then what's it going on behind closed doors. I just think, yeah, I know myself when I, I had bulimia when I was younger, and I just think, in terms of what I used to show the world and then, you know, the kind of dark, messy, out of control side behind closed doors, you know, again, just that real splitting, but just that feeling of having to be perfect, having to be pleasing, having to be what the world wanted. But yeah, then what do you do with all that negative emotion? It doesn't just go away, does it? Or, you know, all those very valid feelings that are also really part of us, that shadow side. Absolutely. And so, you know, for, you know, with the bulimia, it was just about getting it out, right? Like Mm. I can't, it's too much to sit with. So I just need to get it out. Mm. Yeah, no, so true. And yeah, awful kind of vicious cycle to be in, isn't it? You know, it gives temporary relief, but it doesn't solve the problem. (laughs) No. And you know, that's the rub, right? Is when we're in that behavior, it feels like it does. Mm. And then the guilt and shame sets in. And so we numb out, we go back to the perfection, we go back to the negative cycle, because it works with helping us stay numb. Mm. Yeah, no, sure. Yeah, it's like being in that sort of like protective bubble almost, isn't it? Where you are, yeah, detached a bit from emotion, detached from what's going on in the world life can in a way feel a bit more simplified, but also you just lose out on so much, don't you? You're kind of, you're just missing out on the full human experience when you're caught in that awful place. Yeah. Yeah. And not seeing that you're missing out too, you know, because it goes back to that perfectionism piece. Mm. Yeah, no, it's so true. 
So Joelle, in terms of like the work you do today, like do you still do work with people with eating disorders or is it kind of like, you know, I guess I'm sure that comes under the umbrella of all the different kind of, you know, the work that you do, but is it, do you see a kind of range of different people now? I do. So I do still work with eating disorders. Most people that are coming to see me at this point, they've started working with another therapist and they've stalled out or they've been unsuccessful. And so usually with those clients, there's some underlying issues around trauma. Other clients that start working with me, they come in for, again, the same way that I did, right? They Life isn't great. They're having some issues. They know the behavior's a problem. A friend or family member is telling them it's a problem. They don't necessarily want to change, <laughs> yeah. right? And so, you know, we really look at the psyche and their world before we look at the eating. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we have to have a solid foundation of coping skills that are going to work before we start taking or dismantling the negative eating patterns that are happening because that is so scary and vulnerable and raw without having coping mechanisms to replace that with, right? It's too hard to do. Mm -hmm. So clients now, you know, I still work with eating disorder from perfectionism, trauma, and an addictions models. I use a lot of body work or somatic work with eating disorders, and we work outside in. In other words, we work with, let's just talk about skills. We're not even going to focus on food. Let's just talk about skills, relationships, you know, functionality, satisfaction, negative messaging. Let, let's talk about that stuff first. And when we can start to address some of the things that aren't working and we can find other ways to cope, then what I notice is people are much more willing to get into the eating disordered behaviors and the eating disorders themselves. And it doesn't seem so scary. There's also more success with moving into healing. And then we account for the backslides. So for me now, it's all about, you know, you have slide backwards then that's okay. How quickly can you get yourself out? Mm. And so, you know, what used to take me months, I do really well, then I'd have a backslide and it would take me months and months to get out of. Now I can catch it and I'm like, oh, I'm doing this thing. And I know that's a precursor for this other thing. What's going on with me? You know, oh, I'm stressed. Oh, I'm anxious. Oh, I've got to go whatever. And it's like, ah, okay, there's that behavior. It's like, how's this working for me right now? So I start mm -hmm. having this dialogue instead of judging, you know, is how's that working? Do I feel better or worse? Mm -hmm. Most of the time, the answer is I feel worse. I feel worse doing this behavior. Okay. So what do you want to do differently? Not so what, who cares, but so what do you want to do next? Because I, I have a choice. I can keep doing the behavior I know that doesn't work. That's a choice. Or mm. I could choose something different. Maybe not better. Maybe it doesn't make me feel better. It is different. And is that healthy coping? And what I've learned through my own process and work, and now I use the same model with my clients, is most people are able to make a decision fairly quickly Sometimes fairly quickly for someone is two or three days, but that's really different than two or three months. 
Mm. So we work with acceptance of where are we at now? And it's solution focused. And so solution focused therapy of where are we at right now? How can we stay in solution and stay out of judgment? Yeah, it sounds so helpful, actually, that you're approaching it all with just real sort of curiosity and real like compassion and obviously using that word acceptance and the fact as well that people can choose because I think as well when you start to think about letting go of old coping strategies if you're feeling kind of pushed or coerced or anything and it's not a choice it's not going to work is it you know it's got to come it's really got to come from a place where someone's feeling empowered and even if it's just a really baby step in a different direction that can build a bit of momentum, can't it? Yeah, you know, just give us some hope as well. Yeah, because it is easy to have a lot of success in the beginning of starting treatment, whatever treatment looks like for people, and then have one day where you screw up. And then I always call it the efforts, right? You get this like effort, who cares? I can't mm. do it. And then we're back into that negative cycle, right? I can't do it. I'm never going to be able to do it. That's the perfectionism starting to talk, right? And then I just stop. I stop with the healing process. And so part of the goal is to help people break that cycle of, okay, so you screwed up. So like, is the sky going to fall? Because if the sky is going to fall, we need to do a lot more than think about what's going on in our head right now, (laughs) you know? Is it that big of a deal? And when people say, yes, yes, it is that big of a deal, what that tells me as a therapist is like, ah, that's where they're at in their Mm. disorder right now. That's all. That's Mm. all. That's where they're at right now. And what's it going to take to help that person move from this being a really big deal to it being not such a big deal? to being something where it's like, oh, yep, I'm doing it again. I can choose to do something different. Yeah, sure. No, Yeah, sounds really helpful. And I think it sort of relates a lot to like, do you use in your work sort of the motivational cycle of change where you go through the different stages of like contemplation, preparation, action? I don't know if you use that because it it sounds like what you're saying it's very similar to the way I will work but just described in a slightly different way but you know I'm so with you really here we we can be so all or nothing can't we in recovery it's just so normal that motivation will fluctuate and relapse will happen or a blip a lapse but it's changing our relationship towards that isn't it and our interpretation of it so it's not a catastrophe Exactly. Yeah. It's this, that same, that, you know, same model, right. And really, you know, helping clients, not me giving clients permission, but helping clients give themselves permission to be anywhere in that cycle in that Mm. moment. It's okay to come into therapy with your arms crossed saying, I'm here because so-and-so made me. I don't want to be here and I don't want to change. Cool. Like for me, my response to that is, all right, let's start Mm. that. I'm not going to make you change. What do you want to talk about today? Mm. Right. Let, let's just start there. Mm. And I've been, and as a client, I've been there. In fact, that mm. was most of what therapy was the first year for me. It was me sitting with my arms crossed saying, everybody tells me this is a problem. I don't think it's a problem. 
<laughs> denial, <laughs> denial, 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 right? And, you know, I think being able to humanize the process and having someone learn how to find that empathy for themselves to allow for healing, to me, is the work a lot of the time. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love the way as well where you're just sort of describing there where, you know, someone is coming into therapy and, you know, perhaps they're not ready for change. But, you know, I think this is the beauty of good therapy, isn't it, actually, where you can, you're just really meeting someone where they're at and you're giving them a lot of acceptance and holding and, you know, support with that. I think the trouble is sometimes when someone is struggling, they can be in quite unhelpful dynamics with their loved ones, with the best of intentions, where everyone's coercing them to change, everyone's saying they have a problem, and they're just perhaps not ready yet. But actually being able to just come into therapy and to be able to just voice where you're at, honestly, I mean, I always think for someone that is like the beginning of change sometimes, isn't it? Just having a space where you can actually express how you're feeling in that moment and that being okay. Absolutely. And, you know, and I I was saying, you know, I was like that for the first year. I was even worse. I was the worst client ever. I think I still am the worst client ever because I don't want to do homework. And anyway, I'm going on a tangent. But I would come in and I would think, how do I need to be the perfect client? And I'm going to tell my therapist all the ways that I'm trying and journaling and changing and doing my homework, right? I'm going to come in and be the perfect client because I really don't want to change and I'm not willing to be vulnerable and I don't want her to see the real me because the real me is horrific, right? Mm. It's unlovable, is ugly. It's, and I have all of these words that I would tell myself. And, you know, so I was hiding the fact that I didn't want to change because change meant that I had to actually feel and deal with all of the things that were bringing me into that office. And I absolutely did not want to do that work. And like you said, a good therapist, a trauma-informed therapist, a specialist is able to meet the client there and start working with what the client is presenting with, right? And that being okay. That being okay and and allowing for the client to start to discover safety around being vulnerable. Because sometimes that is the scary part, right? Mm, Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, again, just thank you for sharing so openly, I think, about your own therapy experience. Because, you know, I think it's just really helpful for people to hear this. Because I think it's such a common thing, isn't it, where... We go to therapy as well. We feel we've got to be the perfect, perfect client. And there's so much kind of self-loathing and criticism. And, you know, if we feel we're actually showing our real selves, so much fear around vulnerability. So, yeah, thank you for that, Joelle. Joelle, I'm a bit conscious of time. You know, I think I could just talk to you for ages. And I'm very aware as well. Like, you know, I think there's so many different areas that we could potentially explore. And I think you will have to come back on the podcast again. <laughs> oh, I'd <laughs> love to. I would love to, Harriet. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Because I would definitely like to sort of, you know, pick your brain a bit more about, you know, a lot of the sort of trauma 
informed work that you do and you know I know we've sort of touched on that in various different ways but I know that you've got a whole you know a whole kind of like plethora of information to share around that which I really think the listeners would appreciate so much so you are very welcome back if you would like to come back (laughs) yes thank you I would love to I would love to no lovely so Joelle where can people find you if they want to find out more about you or kind of read about the you know the different work you're doing Oh, yeah. Thanks for asking. I know you'll drop it in the show notes. It's my name, Joelle Rabo-Miletus. And so it's joellerabomiletus.com is the website. We're on all these different social platforms. You can find us on IG and TikTok. It's official Joelle Trauma Therapy on IG. We put out skills every day. So we have skills on mindfulness, self-love, eating, perfectionism, trauma, you name it. So it's a place to get free therapy skills. And then we have a couple of new products that we put out for this year. We have a self-love calendar. We have some workbooks that are coming out and some journals that are coming out. So stay tuned. And we always respond to emails. I always have a little gift for listeners. If you shoot us an email and say, hey, I listened to you and Harriet, I'll send you a free download of all seven day journals. So, you know, please do keep in touch. Okay, no, it sounds wonderful. Well, I shall make sure all that info goes in the show notes. And I'm sure you will be hearing from many of the listeners. Um, I hope so. We love <laughs> feedback. I mean, even if it's, you know, if you have something that you didn't like that I said, let me know. Because, you know, the whole point about doing podcasts like this is saying, you know, even as experts are human, and a lot of us have had our own struggles. And For me, the work is still, you know, really embracing the, I am perfectly imperfect and that is okay, right? It's okay for me to have my own struggles and be imperfect and still do this work. So thanks for having me, Harriet. I love talking about it. Oh, no, lovely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Joelle. I really appreciate talking to you today and I really appreciate just your sharing and openness, you know, and you sort of shared in a very sort of candid way. And I think it's just really refreshing and so valuable and really inspiring as well to see how far you have come and everything you've created today in terms of how you're now supporting and helping others. So thank you so much. Of course, my pleasure. Thanks again, Harriet. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. And do go and check out all of Joelle's info, including her PTSD TED Talk in the show notes. If you're not following me already do seek me out on instagram at the eating disorder therapist underscore and for further support with your relationship with food do go to the eating disorder therapist.co.uk if you enjoy this podcast i would be so grateful if you'd follow rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners thank you so much for listening today and i look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon mm-hmm.